Chapter 35, A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35, Waiting for Old Glory, 1835 to 1847. After Figueroa's death, Alta California entered upon a checkered career of no definite tendency unless it were that the province was driving rapidly toward a fresh change of flag. Home rule, restoration of Mexican governors, and home rule again followed in rapid succession. Internal dissension marked the periods of home rule, while the United Front was presented against the Mexican governors. Meanwhile, infiltration of American settlers was constantly going on. That was the decisive factor. No fewer than four men, one of them for two terms, held the office of governor in 1836. Jose Castro had succeeded Figueroa in 1835, but some of the southern leaders objected to him. One of them, Jose Antonio Carrillo, as provincial deputy in the Mexican Congress, had procured an act making Los Angeles the capital. The Diputacion declined to go to Los Angeles and recognized Castro. He resigned on January 2, 1836, in favor of Lieutenant Colonel Gutierrez, who had all along been accepted as a military commandant, the jefe militar. In April, Colonel Mariano Chico arrived from Mexico as the new governor, and in May took over the office. Chico lasted three months, during which time he made himself the most hated ruler the province ever had. He began by announcing the new Mexican centralist constitution, replacing the federalist document of 1824, and this was accepted as easily as all previous governmental changes had been. This was about the only action he took that did not stir up opposition. The climax came when he appeared in the place of honor at a public function, accompanied by his mistress, whom he endeavored to pass off as his niece, and by a woman under arrest at the time for adultery. The uproar over this incident was so great that Chico took refuge on board ship, and on July 31st sailed from Monterey to Mexico. Gutierrez resumed power, but was unable to check the dissatisfaction of the Californians. As a centralist, he was unpopular, not because of any real objection to that political idea, but because Chico had espoused it. The Californians felt that it was time they should have a governor of their own choosing. A quarrel with Gutierrez gave Juan Batista Alvarado an opportunity to put himself at the head of a revolution. Alvarado was only 27, but was already a leading figure in the province, endowed, perhaps, with greater political capacity than any man of those times. Much better informed than most Californians, as a result of his readings when a mere stripling in Sola's library, he became secretary of the Diputacion at 17 years of age, and in 1836 was a full-fledged deputy in that body and a custom house official. Following his dispute with Gutierrez over questions of provincial revenue, Alvarado left Monterey and went to Sonoma. There, he tried to persuade his uncle, Mariano Vallejo, to join him in a revolt against Gutierrez and centralism. But Vallejo was lukewarm. 
arrived at san jose on his return he found three of his fellow deputies antonio buelna jose castro and jose antonio de la guerra son of the already mentioned captain de la guerra who enthusiastically subscribed to his plan a party of thirteen men was formed to march on monterey on the way other californians joined them until they numbered about seventy-five and presently they were reinforced by a terror-inspiring band of mexicans indians and americans under isaac graham a celebrated american trapper and marksman who had set up a distillery in the pajaro valley the army now proceeded to monterey late on november third alvarado quietly took possession of various strategic points of monterey and on the fourth the battle began alvarado made his forces seem larger than they were by marching them in the open from one place to another and causing them to return unseen perhaps to repeat the open march again then he ordered his men to start firing only a single ball could be found that would fit any of the cannon but with this they hit the governor's house that ended the battle gutierrez surrendered and was put aboard a ship bound for mexico alvarado had won but now he had the much more difficult task of consolidating the many divergent elements under his own authority virtually dominated by him the diputacion declared the independence of the province on november seventh eighteen thirty six under the name of the free and sovereign state of alta california with a qualification to the effect that it was to endure until mexico returned to the federalist constitution of eighteen twenty four alvarado became governor and monterey was recognized as a capital while the diputacion took itself to the new title of constituent congress it soon developed that los angeles was not in favor of independence so in january eighteen thirty seven alvarado tried the persuasive argument of a quick march south a much threatened resistance did not develop and he entered los angeles on the twenty third the southern metropolis now discovered that it had no objection whatsoever to alvarado indeed it announced itself as equally opposed to centralism and mexican governors though doubtful of the wisdom of independence alvarado agreed to hold elections for a new legislative body which should review the proceedings of the self-styled constituent congress thereupon los angeles most gracefully submitted the elections were held and the new body confirmed the main features of the laws made by the old except that it substituted a petition to mexico to restore federalism and let alta california govern itself for the previous declaration of independence the lull following the agreement with los angeles was but temporary with the coming of spring young men's fancies both north and south turned lightly to thoughts of revolution the opposition in the south was the more formidable former governor zamorado headed a movement at san diego ostensibly for restoration of mexican rule los angeles fell into line and presently the now familiar scene of sectional differences reached the crucial stage northern troops were at rincon pass near san buenaventura and southern troops at san fernando battle was imminent 
when suddenly all was changed by a factor as strange if not so spectacular as the famous avila charge against governor victoria captain andres castillero who had left alta california with gutierrez now returned with a new centralist constitution of eighteen thirty six since it represented opposition to alvarado the hitherto supposedly federalist south adopted it with enthusiasm early in july castillero passed over to alvarado's lines and alvarado also accepted it nothing could show more clearly than this that political ideals in alta california were little more than catchphrases behind which individuals fought for power the californians were merely in the stage of boss rule which characterized other spanish-american lands of that day alvarado's action was due no doubt to his own precarious hold on the governorship even in monterey there had recently been a temporarily successful uprising against him by swearing allegiance to the mexican constitution he was enabled to retain power as acting governor and got castillero's promise to urge his formal appointment by the authorities in mexico the south was not satisfied but now had no plausible issue so the revolution died a morning the old regime was restored and with it the diputacion returned as successor to the constituent congress the south was not long in finding an issue with which to combat alvarado and the north jose antonio carrillo came back from mexico in october eighteen thirty seven with the information that his brother carlos antonio had been appointed governor nothing in alvarado's career illustrates his political cleverness better than his handling of this situation he knew that castillero could not have reached mexico by the time of carrillo's appointment and had well-grounded beliefs that there was something questionable about the Carrillo case anyway. So he played for time, depending on Castillero to arrange matters eventually in Mexico, and feeling certain that the Mexican government, occupied as it was with more pressing affairs, would recognize the claimant in Alta California with the firmest grip. So while the Carrillos fulminated, issuing demands and threatening him with death, alvarado proposed conferences or sought other means to postpone the issue by march eighteen thirty eight he had some intimations that his cause had triumphed and resolved to further it by striking at the carrillos the southern troops were leisurely besieging santa barbara which had refused to submit to them alvarado sent castro south to attack them Joining the garrison of Santa Barbara, Castro got together a force of about a hundred men and advanced against the enemy, reported to number 110. The battle was fought at San Buenaventura. Castro seized Rincon Pass and bombarded the southern troops with cannon shot on March 27th and 28th. During this time, one of Castro's men was killed, just how it cannot be stated, while there is no record that any of the enemy were hit. The Carrillo army seems to have decided that the battle had gone far enough and slipped away under cover of darkness. Castro pursued and captured seventy of them. It was the first of April when the triumphant northern captain entered Los Angeles. But the Carrillos were not yet ready to admit defeat. A new army was raised at San Diego, wherefore Alvarado himself marched south. At a point south of San Juan Capistrano, called Las Flores, the two armies met 
but hardly clashed. The battle, as Bancroft says, quote, was for the most part one of tongue and pen, though a cannon was fired once or twice, doing no harm, end quote. Alvarado was more than a match for Carlos Carrillo in diplomacy, persuading him to disband his troops as a preliminary to further discussion. This virtually ended opposition to Alvarado. Los Angeles recognized him as governor, though San Diego for some time remained hostile. Not until August 1838 did Alvarado learn definitely that Castillero had been successful, and not until November did he receive formal notification of his appointment. Castillero was rewarded, presently, by an election to the Mexican Congress. Alta California now settled down to a few years of much-needed freedom from internal disorder. Battles of the past few years had indeed caused little bloodshed, but the lack of security of life, limb, and property had been very real. One has only to read the original narratives of men like Alfred Robinson, an American merchant in California, to realize that there was no element of comic opera to them in the civil wars of the thirties. Alvarado turned his attention, after 1838, to many problems of administration which had, for several years, been allowed to drag along as they would. Among other matters was that of dealing with the Indians. Along the entire frontier they had become more than usually bold. On one occasion they abducted a rancher's two daughters. On another they drove off twelve hundred animals from San Luis Obispo. Many battles were fought, especially by Vallejo, who was the most successful campaigner of the times. The administration of the missions, the reorganization of the government, which had recently been reunited to Baja California and made a full-fledged department of the Mexican Republic, consideration of the laws of trade and custom regulations, and the repair of the military establishment were more or less actively taken up. In these matters, Alvarado did not meet with such striking success as in the factional strife of the preceding years, though it is doubtful that anybody else could have done better. It is charged, indeed, that from about 1839 he concerned himself rather more with convivial pleasures than with the affairs of state. Meanwhile, a formidable rival appeared on the scene in the person of his uncle, Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. Vallejo had been appointed military governor or commandant at the same time that the civil authority was formally bestowed upon Alvarado by the Mexican government. For years, Vallejo had been not only an efficient soldier, but also a capable businessman and virtual ruler of the North Bay District, undoubtedly the best-managed section of Alta California. Vallejo did not propose to play second fiddle to Alvarado in military affairs, and started in on his own initiative to exact the same discipline at other posts that he had long maintained in the north. He also tendered gratuitous advice to Alvarado on such other matters as foreign trade, revenue, and administration of the missions, and on this last-named subject he might indeed make valuable suggestions, since he had supervised the missions in his vicinity with greater success than had been met with anywhere else. It was not long before a pronounced coolness developed between the two. The trouble also seemed likely to break out in the south under José Antonio Carrillo or Pio Pico, 
the latter of whom had deeply resented the refusal of alvarado's government to set up los angeles as the capital in addition there were rumors of plotting on the part of the less desirable foreigners who made a rendezvous of graham's bar and boasted that england or the united states would soon get alta california these incidents decided the political-minded alvarado to make a spectacular play in april eighteen forty alvarado caused graham and a number of others of his following to be arrested and four days later they would put aboard ship thirty-nine in all and sent to mexico yet other precautions were taken against the alleged foreign peril and glowing proclamations were published telling how alvarado had saved the country thus did the governor ward off threatened internal strife a strife which was more apt to have arisen among his spanish californian opponents than from graham and his men as for graham he and about half his companions were allowed to return in the following year both that year and the next foreigners arrived in ever-increasing numbers but alvarado did not again take action friction between himself and Vallejo developed to such a point however that the mexican government resolved to reunite the civil and military power in one person to avoid offending either alvarado or Vallejo it was necessary to relieve both of their authority and to send out a governor from mexico though the two spanish californians received a notable promotion in military rank on december thirty first eighteen forty two their rule came to an end both continued to be prominent in california affairs vallejo especially and both lived many years after the change of flag and indeed to a green old age the new governor general manuel micotorena was a genial gentleman who was in many ways deserving of better fortune than fate accorded him as ruler of the californians though he was a man of no great strength remembering that texas had been lost to the republic as a result of the coming of american settlers the mexican authorities were particularly desirous of checking this potential danger they therefore made an unusual effort to provide micotorena with an army but such an army the majority were liberated convicts and the regulars that were provided officers and all were the worst elements in the commands from which they were obtained the term cholos which the californians applied to them is indicative of the low character of these defenders of the country alfred robinson who was at san diego when micotorena and his cholos arrived on august twenty fifth eighteen forty two has this to say of the soldiery quote, they presented a state of wretchedness and misery unequalled not one individual among them possessed a jacket or pantaloons naked and like the savage indians they concealed their nudity with dirty miserable blankets the females were not much better off for the scantiness of their mean apparel was too apparent for modest observers they appeared like convicts and indeed the greater part of them had been charged with the crime either of murder or theft and these were the soldiers sent to subdue this happy country micotorena who managed indeed to provide his men with uniforms remained at san diego for several weeks by day he kept them busy drilling but at night they roamed far and wide stealing whatever they could lay hands upon 
It was with pleasure that San Diego saw them depart. Los Angeles and Santa Barbara soon learned that a most astonishing thing had occurred. On October 19, 1842, Monterey had been required to surrender to an American fleet under Commodore Thomas Jones. In the double belief that war between the United States and Mexico had been declared, and that England was desirous of picking up Alta California for herself, Jones had made a hurried voyage from Peru, and had indeed taken possession of Monterey. Micotorena, then at San Fernando, issued a fiery proclamation announcing his impatience to fly at the dastardly invader, but decided that for the present he could fly better from a point further south. So he returned to Los Angeles. Meanwhile, convinced of his mistake, Jones had hauled down the American flag on the 21st and restored the status quo. Micotorena remained at Los Angeles until July 1843, receiving formal delivery, by proxy, of Alvarado's government while still at that place. The citizens of Los Angeles saw him go with mingled joy and regret, joy over the departure of the Cholos, but regret because it meant loss of the prestige what they so greatly desired of being the seat of government. Monterey rejoiced, but soon realized that their armed protectors were the worst pests they had ever been obliged to endure. Micotorena could not check the depredations of his cholos, but frequently made good their thefts out of his own pocket. The crimes of his soldiers were but one of Micotorena's many difficulties. Alvarado had left the treasury with exactly twenty-five cents in it. Provincial revenues, always too scant to serve provincial needs, were now more heavily strained than ever, if only to sustain the Cholo army. The governor did what he could to obtain sufficient funds, but without conspicuous success. With respect to the Americans, now rapidly pouring through the mountain passes, he did nothing. Indeed, with the forces at his command, he could hardly have expelled those already in the province or prevented those who sought to come. So he took the opposite course, and received them with kindness and, often, humane attentions. The Indians of the interior were not less active than before, and Pio Pico again raised the issue of making Los Angeles the capital, and was incensed at the governor when he vetoed the plan. Talk of revolution once more became current, despite the personal popularity of Micotorena himself. As summed up by one writer, quote, the Californians, or some of the most influential among them, began to regret the union of the civil with the military power and to be dissatisfied with the rule of a foreigner. They did not dislike Micotorina himself. On the contrary, he had won their regard by his agreeable manners, his generosity in making them whole, and perhaps more than whole when his cholos despoiled them, and perhaps also by his indolence which so closely resembled their own. He had quite won the favor of the friars by restoring the missions to their care, and by marrying the mistress he had brought with him from Mexico. He had established better schools in the pueblos and principal settlements than had ever been known before in California, and he had helped the bishop to establish an ecclesiastical seminary at Santa Ines. In fact, 
no foreign governor since Borica had done so much to win the favor of his people. The revolution at length broke out in November 1844. After several weeks of maneuvering between Salinas and Santa Clara, an agreement was reached in December according to which Micheltorena was to send his cholos back to Mexico within three months. It soon afterward became apparent that the governor had no intention of fulfilling the treaty, but on the contrary was getting ready to deliver his opponents a knockout blow. Among others, he enlisted a number of foreigners, mostly Americans, under John A. Sutter, whose establishment at New Helvetia, or modern Sacramento, had, since its founding in 1839, become the principal rendezvous of the immigrants by the overland trails. Isaac Graham also joined Micheltorena with a contingent of sharpshooters. Alvarado and Castro, who were among the leaders of the opposition, hastened south, gathering adherents as they went. Arrived before Los Angeles, they attacked the garrison and captured the city in a battle of January 20, 1845, in which several men were killed or wounded. They made much of the fact that Micheltorena's army consisted largely of foreigners, procuring enlistments to their own forces as a result of the patriotic ardor thus aroused. Meanwhile, they too recruited a foreign company. On February 20 and 21, 1845, the Battle of Cahuenga Pass was fought at Alamos, west of the pass, on the 20th, and at the Verdugo Ranch on the other side on the 21st. The forces engaged were larger than usual. It is said that the Californians had no fewer than 400 men. They also had two cannon, as against Micheltorena's three. On both sides, there were a number of foreigners, in great part Americans, but some of the more prominent among them in each camp were at work pointing out how this was none of their quarrel. So the foreigners in each army did little, if anything, but watch the fight. The engagement on the 20th was mainly an artillery duel, with nobody taking any chances of getting hit. It is said that one horse on the Patriot side had his head shot off, and perhaps another was killed, while Micheltorena's casualties were limited to the wounding of one mule. On the 21st, neither man nor animal fell. And then Micheltorena capitulated. Indeed, his cause was hopeless now that the foreign riflemen would not aid him. He agreed to leave Alta California, taking his cholos with him, and late in March he did so. With his departure, the last real vestige of Mexican rule was gone, though a shadowy allegiance was retained some few months longer. A divided local authority was now restored, with Pio Pico as civil governor and José Castro military commandant. Immediately, the lack of harmony between North and South revived. Pico, earliest in a long line of Los Angeles boosters, removed the capital to the southern metropolis, while Castro and the provincial treasurer and customs house officials remained at Monterey. Even in his own section, Pico was beset with troubles, including a plotted uprising by that stormy petrel of Alta Californian politics, Jose Antonio Carrillo. The plot was discovered, and Carrillo was forced to add yet another exile to several in his career which had gone before. 
differences of opinion between pico and castro were early in evidence the most serious question was that of a division of the provincial revenues debts were pressing and salaries were either unpaid or being scaled down a situation which had become chronic but needs were greater than ever pico was in a position to command legislation favoring the civil branch as opposed to the military but castro and his friends were in control of the funds affairs were shaping themselves for a fresh civil war when there came a burst from the blue that gave a new turn to the situation the news concerned a long predicted uprising of foreigners under the leadership in the present instance of john c fremont an officer of the united states army events now moved rapidly in the celebrated bear flag revolt of eighteen forty six fremont and his companions announced the establishment of an independent california republic meanwhile war between the united states and mexico had broken out in the spring of that same year and the campaign for an american-controlled independent california was transformed into a conquest by the united states the story belongs to the historian of american california here it need only be said that the spanish californians struck a gallant blow before they succumbed to the inevitable acknowledging the rule of jose maria flores they prepared to resist the invasion of general stephen w kearney who late in eighteen forty six entered the province by way of the anza route turning off toward san diego on december sixth came the decisive clash between the respective heirs of spanish and anglo-saxon civilization at san pascual a few miles below escondido kearney remained in possession of the field but only after suffering a loss of twenty-one killed and sixteen wounded the honors of the day may well be accorded to the spanish californians who skillfully commanded by andres pico got off without loss of life though a few of them were wounded there were indeed several more skirmishes between the opposing forces but the local authorities soon realized that resistance was hopeless on january thirteenth eighteen forty seven a peace was agreed upon in alta california and with the signing of the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo between the united states and mexico on february second eighteen forty eight the passing of the old spanish province under the american flag was formally acknowledged what seemed almost like destiny with not a little assistance from the goddess of chance had now been fulfilled the work of galvez and bucareli worthily carried on by the spanish californians had reached its logical conclusion end of chapter thirty five end of a history of california the spanish period by charles edward chapman